welcome to From the Library with Love, a podcast for anyone whose life has been changed by reading. So I am honoured and delighted to welcome to the podcast today, Madeline Martin. Madeline is a New York Times and international best-selling author of historical fiction and historical romance. She lives in sunny Florida, lucky her, with her two daughters, two incredibly spoiled cats and a man so wonderful he's been dubbed Mr. Awesome. She is a diehard history lover who will happily lose herself in research any day. When Madeline's not writing, researching, researching or mumming, you can find her spending time with her family at Disney or speaking, sneaking a couple of spoonfuls of Nutella while laughing over cat videos. She loves to travel, attributing her fascination with history to having spent most of her childhood as an army brat in Germany. Her best-selling novel, The Last Bookshop in London, set in a dusty old bookshop, called Primrose Hills Books, tells a wonderfully evocative story of booksellers under fire during the Blitz. Throughout Black Cats and Air Raids, as the Blitz intensifies, her protagonist, Grace Bennett, discovers the power of storytelling to unite her community in ways she had never dreamed. Welcome, Madeline. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Kate. Oh, I'm so excited to be chatting with you today. Oh, and I, you, I, I read your book probably in record speed, I think, in about <laughs> two or three mouthfuls. And it was just you. sublime. And one of the things I really think, I was, I was sort of reflecting on this later about why I loved it so much. And I think it's a rare book that can transport you so effectively somewhere, like almost like a time machine. It took me into the heart of bomb-battered London. And I could almost taste the sort of gritty, smoky air. I love that because anything... Oh, thank you. Up, so and, and that is especially flattering coming from you because I felt the exact same way when I read the Little Wartime Library. Honestly, you did such an amazing job with that research. Oh, bless you. Well, I, I, yeah, let's, we have so much, to, I don't even know where to start. I have so many questions. <laughs> Shall we just start from the beginning? Like maybe you could tell us about the premise of the book and the inspiration behind it. Yes. So with um, with the last bookshop in London, um, the premise of the book is really uh, like a woman who goes to London for the first time wanting to get a job at Harrods, but she doesn't have a letter of recommendation. So she has to take up a job at, for six months in this dusty old bookshop and uh, with this curmudgeonly owner. And, and it's really something that she doesn't know anything about because she's never really had a lot of time to read. And, um, and you know, really, I think like the main thing for me, and it's a lot of readers have told me, she's not a reader. And I'm like, but wait, <laughs> because, you know, I did write romance before starting to write historical fiction. So I had about 30 books under my belt with romance. And so I kind of pulled out my tools from my romance hat. And, you know, with romance, the whole idea is people love the idea of falling in love. And so you get to let them experience that through the character's eyes. So I wanted to do the same thing with Grace. I didn't want her to be a reader initially. I wanted her to fall in love with reading. And I feel like with readers, so many of us don't even remember that because it was so long ago. And yeah. so getting to remember that love affair with reading and just completely tipping over into that amazing, fantastical world that really becomes almost an obsession. Um, you know, I felt like that was so wonderful and precious. And I had to share that through Grace's eyes. And, you know, it was really fun also getting to take a step back and, and think objectively about myself and my reading and what I love about reading and what I love about books and uh you know it's like sitting there and thinking of all the things you love about your kids or your husband like it just gives you all the feels you know <laughs> oh, do you know what and you are talking and as you're saying this it's making me feel those emotions that I feel when I about books that I love and I love the way that you have almost made 
you know, all books need a great romance. And of course she has a traditional romance with a man, but but I love in a sense that the romance here is between her and books. Yes. Isn't it? That that becomes, a, the, the books are almost like a protagonist in their own right. Absolutely, um, yes. Yeah, and you did that so effectively because it it made us feel those emotions, that excitement, that, that nostalgia, I think, as well, of of all the books that we fell in love with on our, our kind of reading journey. And FYI, I love the word, what was it? How did you describe Mr. Evans again? It was a... Curmudgeonly. <laughs> That's a great word. I think we need to use that word Thank more. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, and he really was such a curmudgeon, like in the truest sense of the word, when she first started working there. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I've met a few Mr. Evans in my time working as a journalist, you know, the conventional <laughs> band. Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, so tell me a bit, because there's so many books about World War II, you know, out at the moment, particularly books about books. And it feels sometimes like as if there's very little left to discover. And yet we both know that not to be the case. There are so many surprises still to uncover in history. How did you... Actually, tell us a bit first about the, the premise of the book and the fact that you discovered this this street of booksellers and, and the history of London booksellers. Tell us a bit about that and how you discovered so, them and what interested you about it. Um, I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm just a history lover. And so I read historical articles um, pretty often. And I happened to stumble upon this one article that was talking about the bombing of Paternoster Row. And, you know, and the way that it all happened, because, of course, I've, I ended up doing significantly more research on it was, you know, the Thames was at the lowest that night. The water names, the water mains had been completely busted. They had this huge bombing raid that was done on Paternoster Row. And for those of you who don't know, Paternoster Row is where really the book district was. Um, it, it really started there after um, the first London fire that completely destroyed that area. Once everything started building up, that's when they were doing printing houses, book warehouses, um, bookstores, publishers. They did everything in the book industry. Really, Paternoster Row was the heartbeat of all of that. And so when that bombing happened on December 30th, it it really like over five million books were destroyed. And, and this was during the paper ration. So you couldn't just print all of these new books. Yeah. And and like I said, the, the, the Thames was at the lowest. They didn't have all the water mains had been busted. And these firefighters literally just had to sit there and watch the fires go until they burned themselves out, which took over three days. So Yeah. So it really, really was very devastating to the book industry. And so that kind of got me thinking, well, you know, what would it be like um, for the book community to have to endure something like that? Now, of course, there are many horrible atrocities that have happened during World War II, but but I feel like books offer so much comfort. And, and when you lose your comfort, you know, that's also very devastating. And yeah. so I really wanted to have sort of like a book community that really came together around the love of reading. And so that's sort of what inspired the idea for The Last Bookshop in London. And you did that so convincingly because I really felt a part of that book community. Um, and it's it's just fascinating as well. I don't think many people will know that kind of really complex history of the booksellers community and the way London had its own distinct districts, I suppose, you know, the way that Fleet Street right. Centre of Journalism. So was that area so integral to, to bookselling and the book community? We, we touched on this a bit earlier, but this development of Grace as a character and almost as if she's educated by the novel's she reads how did you go about researching the novels that she read in wartime and, and which how did you decide which novels to pick as part of her reading journey 
you know, honestly, I just kind of thought about books that for me had been impactful. Um, and honestly, some of these I hadn't even read since high school. So it's, it's books that I read in high school, books that I read in college, even after college, that have really like meant something to me at that time that I read it. So there are two exceptions to that. One is, one of them is um, The Count of Monte Cristo, which really is sort of like the highlight book of the last bookshop in London that she talks about the most. That suggestion came from my father. Um, and so we are a huge reading family. I remember in high school, we would all just sort of be sitting in our respective chairs, reading books in silence. Like I think most people had the TV on and <laughs> everything else, but we were readers. Oh, and you were so, books growing up. <laughs> yes. Now, unfortunately, my family is not like that now. I feel horrible saying that, but, <laughs> but it's a sadness, isn't it? I think it is. Sad. Yeah, it really it honestly is. But um, but yeah, so so I was talking to my dad about the idea for the last bookshop in London and how I was going to incorporate a lot of these books that I had loved. And he said, oh, you know, you have to include The Count of Monte Cristo. That's like my favorite book of all time. It meant so much to me. And then I realized, you know, I had wanted um, I had wanted George Anderson to sort of like give her this inspiration for like reading a book. And of course, he wouldn't have Emma wouldn't be exactly his favorite book now, would it? No, no, <laughs> so it's not the Count of Monte Cristo. Yeah. So I was like the Count of Monte Cristo really would be just like the ideal book for this particular situation because it's such a wonderful unisex book. You know, it has adventure, it has redemption. And of course, it's also a little bit of a romance. Yeah. And so, you know, it, it really does have all of these elements that both sexes really can find a lot of enjoyment in. So, um, and then at the same time, so I have a friend, Eliza Knight, she and I are total besties. And we both had been in the romance world forever together. Um, I think she's seriously has written like 75 romances to my 30. Um, we both had really... Sorry, just to interrupt you. Did you say three? Yeah. Wow. I yes. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. Actually, you know, it's, it's, it's another story. Um, but I, um, I, I had actually been working a day job. I've only been writing full time for about two and a half years. But before that, I was working as a business analyst and I was writing about six to eight books, uh, like romances a year, in addition to my kids being in everything. Um, so, yeah. So. Well, you were just, I have this wonderful image of you, you know, like you clocking on for your day job as a business analyst coming home at night, you know, bashing out your, your romances. You're almost like a novel in your own right. I Right. Yeah. Except it was, it was very unglamorous because usually it was like four o'clock in the morning and now my, my rhythm is still there. So I still get up. Like I got up at four forty or at three forty-five this morning because I just, my brain, I just, even on the weekends, I'm up at like four or five in the morning because I'm, because I did it for like 15 yeah, years. Yeah. I so didn't write six eight books. Them, I suppose almost the way you write. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So so when um, Eliza was writing her book um, that she got signed on, we both got our contracts around the same time, which was like amazing to get to make this journey from romance to World War II historical fiction together. So she wrote the last um, the Mayfair, I'm sorry, the Mayfair bookshop. And I was writing the last bookshop in London. And so we both were really writing in a London environment. And so we were like sharing research and we were we were history nerding out together as best friends do. <laughs> and you know, so it was so fun because we were sharing so much about what we were yeah. learning as we were learning it. And she was talking about pigeon pie when Nancy Mitford um, released pigeon pie, this, you know, really sadly, horribly timed during World War II that was really supposed to be very tongue in cheek about the environment. 
or about, you know, the, the culture and everything going on. And then right at that exact moment, like France had fallen and the book came out and everybody was like, oh, this is in such poor taste. And, and when it was written, it wasn't necessarily that way. So I did incorporate that book because I thought, oh, well, how great would it be if, if like, you know, Grace is really gung ho for this book. And, she, and this is sort of like her campaign that she's, you know, really excited yeah. about. And then this, this book just kind of... <laughs> But I, found that really, I found that really interesting because it showed the speed of events as they unfolded in that dramatic spring summer of 1940 with the fall of France and the Maginot line being breached and nobody expecting it to happen. Right, right. Yeah, because it really went from like the Boer War to yeah. like everything is happening. Yeah. Yeah. And you can and, and actually it was a really good device by by showing it through that book that was a bit of an anachronism suddenly for its time. You you kind of held a a mirror up to what was happening in real life because that time was so turbulent wasn't it and right it was a case of not not a case of if but when we are invaded by the germans so i really felt that in the pages of your book so it was very clever thank to find um thank you <laughs> as you're talking and i'm thinking because you obviously you were researching this in the middle of a lockdown so i know you're right. a meticulous researcher you've been over to england recently on a research trip but you weren't able to do it with the last bookshop in london so how did you go about it? How did you, um, what were your sources? How did, how were you able to bring this book so effectively to life? So, you know, research is, it's so funny because when I was writing romance, I kept jumping to my his, different historical genres. So initially I started out like, you know, in the 1700s and then I just decided to do medieval and then I decided to do Regency. And before I would start doing a new historical genre, I would research for about a year before even writing the books. And, and really with The Last Bookshop in London being my first historical fiction, that's where I discovered that all of this time that I've been writing about history, really it's the research that I just love so much. I think that's why I kept jumping historical genres so much. Right. So historical fiction, it, it just really gives me like this like carte blanche to just go through and, and nerd out on all of this amazing history and like... You know, I never, if you had asked me as a little girl, oh, would you be a huge nonfiction reader? I would be like, no, because fiction's so fun. Oh my gosh, nonfiction books are like my jam. I cannot stop. You know, it's it's funny because I'll be like, I'm going to just take the day off. I'm not going to do any work. I'm going to take the day off. And I find myself sitting there reading a nonfiction book about World War II, you know, whatever it is that I'm working on. Day off when you're reading. So excited. <laughs> yes. Well, this is why I love chatting to you, because there's a rare woman that you can speak to that that knows. I'm sure I could probably put you on mastermind specialist subject World War II and you would know everything. And I feel like <laughs> the same. I love it so much. You know, that yes, it's so fascinating. You can open up. And these books are always like when you order them and they come because they're quite old, a lot of them. You open the book and there's always that wonderful kind of mildewy smell that transports yes. you, doesn't it? Like I feel yes. that. Yes, and you just like, oh my gosh. And now you have to, of course, talking about book smells, you have to talk about the best old book smell that you ever traveled oh. so many miles to go and see. <laughs> or smell, I guess, should be the case. <laughs> I should be telling this because this reveals how tragic I actually am. <laughs> you mean amazing <laughs> I, because I know you would have done exactly the same but whilst I was being, uh, researching for the little wartime library I had interviewed this lovely librarian from Exeter in the west country and she said and we were talking about the blitz and she said oh Exeter library was completely destroyed on midway through the blitz there was a, a high explosive bomb dropped through the roof and every single book was burnt to dust she said bar one 
she said that it was called an English man of letters and she said oh you must come down and smell this book because it's in our vaults it's called our blitz book she said it's the only survivor of the blitz and it still smells of the fires of the blitz and I thought wow so that was it I was on a train 350 miles it took you know it was like a six hour round trip and I I buried my face in the (laughs) in the spine of this book and she was right it really this book really wears the perfume of that night. It's a really curious mix of sort of a brackish smell, a bit mildewy, um, sort of bonfires, and it's almost like coats the pages. And honestly, when I when I inhaled it, it was like inhaling history. I really oh wow, thought, this is what the the fires of the Blitz smelt like. You can read it and you can hear people telling you about it, but right. that one inhale took me really effectively into the streets of Coventry and, and, and Exeter and London all those other places that were so badly bombed um wow. and it, was, it was just fascinating and then I got home my husband oh, that's amazing <laughs> yeah my husband picked me up from the train station he said where have you been I said oh I went uh, 350 miles to smell a book and he just shook his head he said, oh, you, there's no hope for you now <laughs> at this point they're used to our, our quirkiness and <laughs> yeah yeah exactly <laughs> <laughs> This is what's so interesting about research, and I'm with you. I could spend and and do obviously over research all the time. Um, in fact, I'll tell you a little funny story. I because I, I, I think there's a real lesson to be learned as well about research. Because I tend to because I spend so much time like you, and we absorb ourselves in the past. You there's a temptation, and this is a real art to this to not putting too much of your research into the pages of the book, not to just information dump into the narrative. Because it's so hard. It is hard. And, <laughs> I read a review recently, a woman said, put, oh, Thompson has really done her research. And I thought, oh, wow. And I was quite smug. I was like, that's good. And then she put, and doesn't she want us to know it? And I was like, oh, oh ouch. <laughs> but actually, I learned an important lesson from that because I think a lighter hand when it comes to the application of research is, is probably you know, just a, just mere brush strokes instead of, right. you know, dousing. Well, I don't know what book she was talking about, but if it was a little wartime library, then she doesn't know what she's talking about. <laughs> I loved it. I thought it was a beautiful balance between fiction and the story and just the meat of history that you were sharing. Yeah. But, but tell me a bit more about your research then and how you, what, yeah. So sources and you read a lot of books, obviously. Yes. Yeah. So, you know, you had discussed um, uh, we before this, before we started recording, we were talking about mass observation and mass observation was really, really huge for me, really getting um, a lot of that firsthand experience um, from people's perspectives to really start kind of creating a foundation for the characters. So when I build my characters, I actually so I'll sort of the process is like I'll research for about 10 months and then I'll build my characters and then I'll um, have my plot sort of put together with historical um, points that have happened and how those characters will react to those particular aspects of history. And the reason why I wait so long to build my characters is because everybody's going to be so different depending on where they live. So one of my favorite examples that I like to give of this actually does come from the last bookshop in London when Buckingham Palace was bombed in the very beginning of the Blitz. And, you know, um, or like in the, the, you know, first part of it. So if the White House had been bombed, whoo, America would be like, we want vengeance. Like, let's go kick some butt. Right. But when Buckingham Palace was bombed, the Queen said, well, now I can look the East End in the face. The East End being the ones who really got it in the very first part of the Blitz. 
And everybody in England was like, look at the king and queen. They're being bombed just like us. So this whole point of the Blitz was really to completely, just completely crumble British morale. And it did exactly the opposite. It brought everyone together. And so when you start to understand the, the mood of the culture, when you start to understand how people react to, to certain things based off of how they've been raised, based off of the history of their country, you can create a, a stronger character who's yeah. going to be more accurate to that time and place. Um, you know, it's funny because with the I, I get, um, you know, people from uh, the international translations that, that read the last bookshop in London, they'll post on Instagram sometimes. And I always read through. I do like the little translate so I can read what they yeah. say. And and somebody said, you know, I really love the last bookshop in London. But she thought that London or that England was the greatest country in the world. And what's up with that? And I was like, well, of course she did. She was British. Like, why would she not feel that way? <laughs> you know, and it really is. It's just. Yeah. And, and it really is. It's, you know, it's it's making that character, which, of course, I think like England is an amazing country and I absolutely love it. But I think that she felt like a little bit slighted because her country, I guess, didn't seem like it was as, you know, but um, but so, you know, and that's exactly it is that the character has to really shine through as being authentic. You know, one aspect of research that I never had the opportunity to really be able to incorporate in, into my books was really the media aspect of it because I had done Regency and medieval. So of course there aren't sound clips, there are no video recordings, there are no pictures of the street from day to day. So I actually keep um, a magnifying glass on my desk so that whenever I'm pulling up pictures, I can actually zoom in, wow. like manually zoom in. <laughs> That and see, like the name of, like, I'm boring that. Yeah, so that you can see, you know, like, what does the street look like? Is it cobblestone? Is it asphalt? What is the buildings that are around there? What are the little the stores that are selling? What are they advertising in the windows? And so you can really kind of, you know, That's zoom in and see all of that. It's such a good technique. I'm definitely borrowing that one. I know. Because <laughs> actually, if you, if you, you know, you go in close and you look at the minutiae or that you can get a microscopic look. Sometimes it's the tiny little details that tell a way bigger story, isn't it? Right, exactly. And you can see like, you know, what are their clothes that they're wearing? What do the buttons look like? I mean, you know, you can go in and you can go so incredibly close on all of that. And it's it's really neat. And then even like, you know, with the last bookshop in London, there was that one scene um, where she was in the tube station where she started reading to everybody. And while I was writing that, I actually had found a sound clip of what it sounds like sounded like during the Blitz. When you first hear the air raid siren go off and then there's like this eerie silence and then you hear these distant pops and bangs of uh, and like thundering booms and it starts getting louder and louder as it gets overhead. It's like cacophonous. It's like almost white noise. You really can't even distinguish one sound from the other. And then it fades away again. And then again, it's that just that like ominous press of silence. And yeah. then you hear it all clear. And I would listen to that while I was writing that scene. And it really just like I was there. You know what I mean? And and that was having um, having a, an opportunity to hear and really have part of your senses fully immersed in what was actually happening. Yeah. Um, it really it really lends itself to a strong scene, I think. 100%. And even as you're saying that, I can feel, I can hear it in my mind's eye, that reverberation after the all clear drains away and there's that sort of reverberating silence and how eerie it is. Like, yes, sound, you know. But I think what you tapped into there, and I love, is that visceral element of engaging all the senses when you're writing. And that's what you do so brilliantly. And 
I remember listening once when I first started out writing to a, a wonderful interview that Julie Cooper did on Desert Island Discs, where she's she was asked, like, what's the secret to your success? And she said, I always, she said, I do, it's almost like sensory overload when I'm writing. I try to think, what do things, what do they taste like? What do they sound like? What do they feel like? What did they smell like? And I think if you can layer that into your writing, it does add that extra depth of, or just make it really feel evocative, which you definitely did. And I think I can almost tell the scenes where you were listening to the air raid sirens. As you <laughs> so, Thank um, you. Magnifying <laughs> glasses and listening to air raid sirens. That's any yes. fiction writers. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then, of course, you know, just reading tons and tons and tons of uh, historical fiction. And and now that you know, after that, like when I wrote the Librarian Spy next. Um, with that one, I was able to travel to Lyon, France and to Lisbon, Portugal, where the books were both set. And so, you know, I had the opportunity to get to really have that one on one experience. And um, and even Warsaw with my next book coming out, The Keeper of Hidden Books, I went to Warsaw for two weeks. So so now that the pandemic is over, I'm very grateful for the opportunity to be able to go and really have, you know, like that that sensory experience of being in the place where all of these things had happened. Yeah, for sure. It, it does. Yeah, which, and now I, I had actually been to London several times um, because of my because of having lived in Germany for so long. But I will say that when I was visiting London in my 20s, um, historical research wasn't my priority. We'll just no, leave it. I can imagine. <laughs> I'm sure you were running around and No, I'm very much about the city and I knew what it was like to be there and to walk yeah. the. No, <laughs> you're a different person now in your 20s. Yeah. You were in your 20s. I'm different in my 30s and 40s. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to ask what do you prefer writing or research I think I might know the answer is but where's your comfort zone where's the place you could just happily hang out I mean I guess it depends on the day <laughs> you know like wait because when writing is coming easily it's like it's like your soul is singing yes. and then the day yes. that that blinking cursor is sitting there winking at you it's like yes. it's like the the deepest lows of your soul is shriveling. At yes, exactly. And you're like, why am I doing this? I'm a terrible author. I can't oh. even think about words to write, you know, so it, but then, but yeah, you know, and then with research, you know, research also is sort of its own double-edged sword because, you know, on, on these days that you have where you're like, oh my gosh, this is incredible. And I'm finding so much amazing information with, with researching World War II, you know, it is a very difficult topic to research sometimes. And there are things that you can read about, and I know that you know this, that you will never get out of your head. And it's like, it's like you know, seeing a picture that you wish you had never seen. Um, it's reading things that you wish that you had never put in your brain. And there are things I, I won't even tell my husband about because they're so disturbing. And I don't want to ever, you know, put any of that stuff in people's heads but there are some things that you know i'm like okay i think i'm done for the day i'm just gonna i'm just gonna leave it at that and move on to the next chapter tomorrow and uh and and research something else because I, I, it can get very dark yeah i agree 100 percent. there are some things that you research like when i was researching uh the occupation of jersey for my upcoming book and one of my protagonists ends up in a concentration camp you you hear and and experiencing that irrevocably change the way you see something you know and, and yes. it kind of it sort of soaks into your soul a bit doesn't it that darkness of which yes. as a writer you have to be able to absorb that in order to be able to write with empathy and emotion towards your towards your protagonist but it's quite a lot right. to take on board sometimes isn't it 
Yeah. And, and sometimes your ability to compartmentalize um, gets a little bit overwhelmed. And um, and sometimes you just can't keep compartmentalizing. And that's when you have to kind of take a break, you know. Yeah. But but I will say, I think like I do get a little bit obsessed with the research. And I think it's a really good thing that and I'm sure you probably feel the same way that we have deadlines, because <laughs> otherwise I could spend like 25 years accidentally researching because I could see myself being like, has it been 25 years and I never wrote this book? <laughs> but there's so much more I want to learn. <laughs> still researching our books. Oh, but for sure, I'm exactly like that. And you're right. Thank God for deadlines in that sense. Because otherwise, where, where do you where do you switch off? Because there's no end to the amount of research you could ever do, is there? And I right. I had to say that to myself with the Little Wartime Library when I, I kind of set myself this slightly rash goal of interviewing 100 librarians to to celebrate 100 years of the library and I thought about oh, how I love that. yeah no it, it was a good idea but then there kind of came a point where I thought oh god Kate you are over you have over researched this book <sighs> but then I think then again I think oh there's no such thing as too much research either but you know the next book has to come so right <laughs> but I, right. I feel like I, I always like I actually have started grouping all of my research into boxes when I'm done because I oh. have done different countries and that way like for example with um the keeper of hidden books the one that's set in Warsaw um I happened to just I had it all kind of piled in one corner so I could actually count it all but I had over 100 nonfiction books and I filled over 15 spiral bound notebooks with my handwritten notes Wow. And of course, obviously, I mean, it's a 105,000 word book. It doesn't have all of that incorporated into there, but I have it all in one place. So if I ever write about Poland again, yeah. you know, I can, I can pull that out and I can, I can kind of read almost the cliff notes version of some of my yeah. research before I jump into another round of another layer of research. We'll call it that. <laughs> because essentially you're building your own reference library. Yes, you can access it anytime. And I have, you can't see it here, but on my bookshelf, I've got two, three shelves just about the Blitz. And it's great because you can dip in and you can think, oh God, what bomb dropped where and, you know, at this time and what was rationed at that point. And you can just delve in. And yeah, absolutely. I, I always, you know, I always buy all of the books that I use, um, which is ridiculous. These books are like a fraction of what I have. My husband actually is building a bookshelf for me in the living room. And so we have books filled everywhere. I think at this point, I feel a little bit like Primrose Hill Bookshop um, with all the piles of books we have all over my house right now. I um, love that your husband is building your bookshelf. And I'm oh, it's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I am. I am so excited. Except, you know, I think that once it's done, it's going to be filled. <laughs> you have to buy a big house. You know that, right? The more we're right. <laughs> exactly. So but you know, I actually started organizing all of my uh, nonfiction books into time period and history and location. Because I got to the point where, you know, I had France and I had Portugal and I had England and I had Poland. And then I had some stuff on Germany, too, because I wanted to make sure I understood things from the other side of the war. And um, and so, you know, I would be like, oh, where was that one book? And then I next thing I know, I'm like looking through hundreds of books. Yeah. And so at least now when they're in certain sections, because you, you know how you'll be like, you can almost see the page when you're thinking about that one piece of research that you need. And you're like, I know that it was like halfway down the page and it was this one book with like the bright red cover. And like, when you see it, you know, you know, yeah, yeah, and <laughs> you know it where it is. But you know what, in another life, I'm thinking you could have been a librarian. Oh, I definitely totally <laughs> could have been a librarian. I would have, I would have happily done that as well. 
I love that like, you guys do for research. Honestly, you are a woman from my, uh, after my own heart. I can tell you that. <laughs> Um, so I we think, definitely are in good company. Oh yeah, if we ever got together and compared, maybe we should do that. We can have a book swap holiday or something. I mean, oh, that would be share so my fun. books with you. I'm <laughs> in. I'm in. Actually, for anyone listening to this, before we had the chat, I'm I'm going to share a piece of research that I found um, by the Mass Observation Society about reading in wartime with Madeline. And I think it's just so great to be able to exchange information as we find it and. Because there's so much out there, but it's it's kind of yeah. hard to sometimes find, isn't it? It um, is, yeah. Especially if it comes from a rare source that you would have to have like direct contact with. It's it's different if you can just kind of do a search on Amazon and it pops up, you know. But but when uh, when yeah, it comes from a from a special source or something, it is a little bit more difficult. And I think, and when you get a good source, the kind that as you're reading it, you're just thinking, oh yes, I've hit gold, and the hairs on the back of your neck go up because you're reading like like with that books in the public voices of women who would ordinarily be lost to history that's what I love about the mass observations over that they that just ordinary working women who never actually had a voice were given that by the the mass observation survey and and they went out and and you can hear that the the sort of usage of the language is so rich and so resonant and it takes you right there in a way that nothing else can because there's there's words that used in during World War II that have fallen out of everyday kind of parlance right use them anymore so suddenly you think oh yeah and you can you can be like a little story magpie as you're scouring through these surveys and you think oh I love that word I'm going to use that word and just drip feed it <laughs> that's like magic to me I think you know, yes you find that source in the back of every single one of my spiral bound notebooks I have two pages one is um is like daily things that people would see so it could be like companies that were advertising on billboards at that time or, you know, whatever kind of like food that they would eat is like, you know, Smith's crisps kind of thing, like right that there. And then one is vocab. And, yeah. and it's, I see words, especially words that are repeated, like snaps instead of pictures, you know, yeah. little things like that. I write that in there because I feel like it, it does, like it really lends such an authenticity to that time period that we're writing about. Definitely. And you're so right, because those sorts of words are, if you want to take somebody somewhere and, and make them feel so absorbed in the story that they forget what year they're in, you don't really want any kind of, we were talking about this earlier as well, you don't want any anachronisms. You don't want to suddenly come up against a word that wrenches you back to 2023. And right. we very happily point that out to you as well. So <laughs> I, I actually found yeah. this incredible, she's, she's a librarian and she is the best spotter of anachronisms and so whenever I finish the first draft, I send it to her. And she just has this incredible eagle eye. And she goes through and she says, oh, no, that word wasn't in usage then. That is wow. that. Like, and I, uh, she's my, she's just amazing. And so I, I let her loose on all my manuscripts before I send them to my editor. And she weeds out so many little words like that. Oh, wow. That's so awesome. <laughs> she should be doing that on the side. I would pay her for that. <laughs> I'll put the details on you. I'm sure she'd love to. <laughs> seriously is so awesome (laughs) you know especially especially with like um with being an American and writing um about characters who are her English you know and it's funny because I did a podcast one time and um and it was like you know two hosts and and one of them said was English and he said oh I read your book and my first thought was like oh god I hope it was okay (laughs) because you know with, with being an American and writing a book about people who are English it really is so intimidating like with other foreign languages it's not as big of a deal because 
you know, so much does get lost in translation. But when you're dealing with an, an English, you know, we, we speak the same language, but it's a little bit different. It is very intimidating and hoping that I got everything right, you know. I would never have considered that. But yeah, of course, you're right. Although having said that, I the book I'm have just I'm writing now set in Jersey in the Channel Islands. I had that fear. I was like, oh God, I'm not from there. Can I do this? Well, of course you can, because you know, writers should be able to extend their imagination to writing about places they're not from. But yeah. right, it is intimidating because you think, oh gosh, I I want to make sure I've got the language just right and so forth. But but I think you don't need to worry about that because your research is so meticulous and immaculate. Yeah. I felt at any stage that this was not authentic. Um, well, thank you. I really do appreciate that. <laughs> so I was intrigued reading your your bios that you grew up in Germany um, as a you know as a self styled army brat as you called yourself. What were you kind of aware? I mean, obviously you were you aware of the aftermath of war there, or what was the feeling like growing up in Germany? I'm fascinated by that. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, we very much were aware of what had happened in World War II. We were very much aware of, um, of you know, the horrible things that had happened, and that there was a lot of shame about it, and a lot of a lot of like feelings of guilt. And we were taught about it, in in a way like that we wanted to ensure that nothing like this would ever happen again. And so we're educating people about it, and we would have survivors who would come in and talk to us. Um, at school, you know, like when we would go to, I'm trying to think, uh, there was one place that we went to, it was like a ski resort and there was one of Hitler's bunkers was there and you could actually go down and do a tour and they would talk about it. So, you know, I feel like for me, it, it really was such, um, such a very indelible part of my childhood because it really like, it's one thing to read about it. And it's another thing to hear witness about it and and to see it yourself and you can feel that that presence you know in when you go down into those bunkers and so i really think that that is one of the reasons why i have always been so interested in world war ii especially when you hear about these amazing heroes who stepped forward who i mean because it's so easy to say oh, I would totally stand against Hitler and risk my entire family to save people that I don't know because it's the right thing to do. That is such an easy and such a glib answer. And um, and really, if you think about it, would you really let your children die so that you could save somebody? And and that becomes so difficult, right? Because they're your children or they're your elderly parents. And, and when you start to really incorporate emotion on this level, you know, it, it is so hard to really think, God, I hope I would make that right decision because there's so much at risk. And it makes the the amazing things that these people did so much more incredible. Yeah. And, and I think that's one of the things that I've always um, really liked so much about reading about World War II is how many brave people there really, really were who did the right thing, despite the cost that many of them unfortunately had to pay. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. It's very easy in retrospect to say, well, I would have done this or I've done that. But actually, who knows what side of history would have come down upon. And you're so right when faced with, you know, a totalitarian regime like that, how how much of people had to, you know, that, that, that did resist the regime and, and those extraordinary acts of bravery. I think it's like a refusal, isn't it, to believe that somebody else's humanity is more important than your own, you know, like right. that, that selflessness. That's quite rare, actually. But but it's so interesting listening to you talk about growing up in Germany and it's obviously shaped you, your identity and made you in a way that that's obviously where that hit that love of history because you've had a full on immersion of, in it. 
Oh, yes. Well, my, and my, you know, we traveled so much when we were in Germany because, you know, with Europe, everything is like a train ride away, which makes it just, I mean, even more wonderful. And yeah. so we, we really took advantage of it and we went everywhere. And I really, you know, when you go places and they have the tour guides and they're talking about these things, they're not like, oh, and this is a building where blah, blah, blah. They're animated about it. They're making jokes. They're bringing it to life. And as a result, I just fell completely in love with history. It's always been something that's really fascinated me. And, and I feel like people who don't like history, I hate to I hate to say this, but I think that they had teachers who were really boring because I feel like when when history is taught well, how can it not be amazing? I mean, how can it not just be the most fascinating topic in the world? I literally don't even know. <laughs> I'm the same. I love history and I love how relevant it always is. You know, just to me, I'm, I'm reading things, I'm learning things. And it's so it's not dusty or archaic. It's fresh and it's relevant to everyday life, I feel, when I'm when I'm looking back. But there's always a sort of I don't know what, what the word is, whether it's nostalgia or romance. But I feel wrapped up in something when I'm reading history or I'm into a really good book or I'm in a great bit of research or writing. It's sort of for me, it's just. I don't know. I think I think it, when you learn about the past, you're learning about where you are, who you are as a person now. Right. It stitches you together in the threads of a much bigger picture, I feel, with, with history. Absolutely. Yes. So I've got to ask as well, like one of the things I'm trying to get under the, the skin of a little bit, I suppose, with this podcast is this understanding of why we love books about books. What are we getting from it? Um, I feel like you kind of trailblaze this whole genre with the last <laughs> what is it about this this and it is almost like a genre in its own right now why why does it make our souls sing why do we love it so much because you see it in reviews don't you people go oh, I'm, right I'm there you know? right exactly you know I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that reading is such an everyday part of a reader's life and books are like I don't know about you but and I'm sure you're really probably the same way Every day I'm thinking about a book that I'm reading or that I'm listening to. I hear about a book that I can't wait to read. I think about a book that I had read or I see somebody pick it up and be like, oh, that's a good book. You should read that. Or even life instances where, you know, you might you might see something like, oh, I remember reading a book that was like that, that had that scene in there. And now it, it means something to me because I'm seeing it in real life. Yeah. And and so I think that that is what is so wonderful about books. And and I think that's really the draw of readers, because at the end of the day, we all have our heart really seated in books. And and it just makes it so much fun to write about. And to it's it's like, you know, being a cat lover and watching a cat video. <laughs> yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Actually, isn't it? <laughs> being a reader and reading about books while you're reading a book. It's like double the pleasure, right? <laughs> yeah. And I think and I think that pleasure is only made more potent or intensified when you know that it's a true story as well I think right. we, we what, what is again you know the, the readers connect when it has that a novel based on a true story or people really so so what I found often is that people read the little wartime library and they might like it but then they get I, I wrote at the back of the book about the true story that informed it so that actually this library existed and here are the photographs and Mrs Chumley was a real woman there's her photograph I suppose it connects us doesn't it to the past right that possibility that it did actually happen do you feel that because obviously you you do the very same thing really you're very much rooted in reality and true stories is that important to you as well absolutely yes I I think it's um you know part of it is because it is so fascinating to 
feel like you've really walked in the footsteps of people who have already walked this earth. But, you know, there's there's the other part of it, too, where it's like you get this education. Um, that's like I always like to think of it as like brain candy, where it's like, you know, you have all this wonderful fiction, and everything. But at the very middle of it is this like wonderful nugget of knowledge that you've been able to really just start to understand. And and then there's I think the, the biggest thing for me, as far as writing it, at least goes is that we are paying homage to these people who lived once, people who would otherwise probably slip between the cracks of history and be lost forever. And we are we are bringing their names up again. We're bringing their memories up and the things that they did. And we're letting people celebrate the things that they did. Because realistically, a lot of the people that we write about, you know, especially with women, they, they were like, that's just what we do. Like, I dropped the kids off at school. I made dinner. I ran some courier notes. You know, I made, I passed a couple bombs to, to the Melise out here. And, and then, you know, and then I went home and put the kids to bed because that's what you do, you know, and, and it just, it really is. I feel like, like women didn't even really get to have their moment to shine really after World War II. In fact, a lot of them were like, hey, thanks for your service. Go on and go back to raising kids and oh, taking yeah. care of your house again. And so this gives them a chance to really be celebrated in such a beautiful, memorable life, hopefully continuing on for generations way. I could not agree more. I really couldn't. I've always been passionate about this. There are so many women whose memories are hidden in the shadows. And I've always tried to work out why that is, particularly working class women. I feel like they're massive achievements to the social, the economic, the political history of the world is always hidden somehow, like as if it's not important. We always tend to look back on say, oh, they were just factory workers and they were just mothers. And yet, so often these women have made massive contributions and are always overlooked. And yeah. I feel like the tide of that is turning, thank goodness. But there are often no statues to to women like Mrs. Chumley or to Grace Bennett. And yet there should be because the contributions right. were profound. And and I feel like this is, our, for me, that's how I feel like I can make my um, tribute to their, to their sacrifices in a way and see it in that way so yeah you're absolutely right I feel like we do need to be acknowledging the the contribution of these women way way more so yeah it's the perfect way to do it but you're right they're always overlooked <laughs> yeah and and I think that's what's so fun um because I know you do this as well about writing about everyday people like there's so much there's so much written about you know the the nobles and the rich people and and these people in these really high positions but like you know it's so fun to learn about how everyday people lived. I want to know, like, you know, they have the chimney sweep come and, and you know, the ointment, the number eight ointment that they would have to put on in case of a gas attack. Like these little details, I think they're so fascinating. These these were details that everyday people had to think about on top of their, their lives and their careers and their kids and everything else. Yeah, and I always hear this thing, like when I go out and interview people, particularly from that wartime generation, they say, oh, I'm only ordinary. And then you dig deep into their lives and you discover they're anything but ordinary, they're extraordinary. You know, they might have helped to dig up bodies from bomb sites or sat on roofs fire watching or yeah. over the tubes in protest at the lack of deep level shelter or simply like the Herculean task of, you know, feeding, juggling rations to feed many mounds. It's, their lives are anything but ordinary. They're often extraordinary. Right. Trying to sort of fathom why that is. And I think. I think it's because women didn't instigate history, but they were forced to react to it. So right. I think she's, when seen through their eyes, for me, it takes the true temperature of the times. It's like history up close and personal. Like you say, those little details of the gas mask and what they scrubbed their doorsteps with and where they bought their shopping and which shops at the market. Right. That's real history for me. That's, right. that's 
history that is relevant to all of us, not kings and queens and people who made you know laws and started wars. It's the people who had to live with the the ramifications of that. Yes, absolutely. Who have the most fascinating stories to tell. So I have to ask as well, like going into that thing about books, about books and libraries, I really feel like a library and a bookshop is almost like a microcosm of life. We see all life, don't we, through through the doors of the library. Oh, yeah. <laughs> We're getting a glimpse of humanity as a whole. Would you agree with that? Is that a sense that you got whilst doing your research? Oh, absolutely. Um, I mean, you just, you really do have so much depth that you can find in all of those books and, and you never know what you're going to find, which is, which is, is really exciting. Like, it's funny because whenever um, I start a new book, I order like all these books online and, um, and because a lot of them are actually out of print, I'm sure you've encountered this as well. And so you have to like a books and thrift books and a lot of these like smaller places and so they we have like the mailboxes that are not attached to the house or like it's like a mailbox like down the road. And so I know that I've ordered a lot when they come directly to my door with like these postal boxes that are filled <laughs> with all of these. Books. And and I'm sure that my the mail person hates me. But, <laughs> you know, it's funny because a lot of times these books will also keep trickling in. And I'll get it and be like, oh, it's a book. And my family's like, yay, it's a book. It's a book. Like, <laughs> but for me, it's, it's like Christmas. And I open it up like, oh, this is the one that's about blah, blah, blah. I've been waiting on this. And I get so like I'm turning the page. I go to the inventory or the index of the back. And I, I, you know, for like, especially if it's a specific thing I'm looking for, and I'll go right there and start reading and be like, oh, my gosh, it's like it's like watching a touchdown happen on a tight game. You know, I'm like, Oh, this is exactly what I was looking for. That's yes, that's exactly. Yes, exactly. And and so you know, it's it's just um, and you just you never know what interesting stories might emerge in the depths of these books and these firsthand experiences that you can read that are just that just touch your heart and your soul, and it's it's really just incredible. Yeah, for definite. And and you're right, Those it, it, having the resource of that is amazing. I found as well, I don't know if you've ever listened to it, but the Imperial War Museum um, online have digitized all of their kind of oral, well, most of their oral archives. So you can go back onto some crackly old tape and listen to somebody who might have slept at Bethel Green Underground in 1936. So that's an amazing Oh, I didn't know about that. I'm actually oh, writing that down. You get out Imperial War Museum, just go onto their archives and you can listen to, you know, so when I wanted to find somebody that had been at the Battle of Cable Street, say in 1936, and you can type in in the search word and you might get somebody that was there. So that's a really fantastic resource to, to check out for sure. Yeah, that's wonderful. Thank you. <laughs> so, and also when you're next over, the British Library, if you want any any book ever, they have it there. I don't know. Oh, that's awesome. They must have cabins beneath their library because you can get anything. And, you know, I've gone in and ordered and, they have these beautiful old reading rooms and I've just lost days in there. <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. Yeah, I've decided the next time I come back to England, I'm probably going to spend like two weeks in London and, mm. and really just do like really thorough. Because, I, you know, we only did a little bit of time in London and I finally got to go to the Imperial War Museum, which was amazing. Um, you know, there's so much that I still wanted to get to do. Uh, so I'm hoping that I have more time for the next the next trip. <laughs> Hey, to, on that subject, are you tell are you able to tell us a little bit about what you're writing or researching now? 
So a little, little bit, because technically, technically my um, editor hasn't approved my proposal uh, yet. You want to <laughs> talk about your... Come back, <laughs> yeah, I don't want to get in trouble. back before I left for the trip saying, um, okay, the location is good. And I'm like, good, because I have plane tickets. <laughs> so, yeah. um, so it's going to be set in Nottingham and there will be a little bit of it that's um, in London as well. I will just say that people who love books about books will not be disappointed. <laughs> that. That it's going to be very exciting. So I'm asking all of my participants three sort of final questions. Um, and it's really interesting to compare and contrast people's answers. So what, I know it's really difficult this, but if you had to choose one favorite childhood book, what do you think yours would, or what, what's sort of singing out to you? Um, Little House in the Big Woods by Laura Ingalls Wilder. Oh. I loved the Little House in the Big Woods series. Um, are you familiar with it? I haven't read it. I have to confess, but I'm going to now. Oh, I loved that series. I think that series is actually what got me into loving historical fiction. So it's about this little girl who lives in, oh gosh, I can't even remember where she lived now. Um, but but she like, you know, had this like log cabin and they talk about how they lived back then and then they moved to the prairie. And, and it's just like, it's this whole, it gives you all these daily life details and they were ordinary people and how they lived and how they got through the winters and how they cooked their own, like, you know, killed their own food to cook. And, and wow. it just, I mean, this whole family dynamic, it's like, it's very wholesome. And um, it? it was absolutely my favorite series. Oh, wow. What year is it set? Or, or kind of rough era, is it set? So I want to say like the 1800s, I believe. So... Wow. I'm fascinated in that. It's sort of like a, almost like a Wild West kind of era. Kind of. Let me, and now I'm looking it up because um, I confess it has been so very long since I've actually even read these books. <laughs> I had the whole set and I read them over and over and over again when I was a little girl, which was a very long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> it spoke to those books, didn't they? <laughs> yeah. Let me see if I can, let me see. I'm not sure because it says the original publication date was 1932, but that's not when the book was actually set. So yeah, I'd have to, I'd have to look it up, but it was in the 1800s okay, and it was like the pioneer kind of family life and everything. It's very, very fascinating. It's interesting, isn't it? Because I think back on your childhood books, I always think there's a sort of, we read books for something that we have a secret longing for. Like I, I was desperate for a horse when I was growing up and where we were, we couldn't really, there weren't, you know, there was, we couldn't afford it basically. So I used to read Black Beauty. Like I, I thought, well, I can live vicariously through, through the books. And that's what I did. And when I wanted to go to boarding school, which, but FYI, I'm really glad I didn't now, but as a child, <laughs> I, used go, I used to devour Mallory Towers by Edith Blyton because <laughs> that was my entry into it. I thought, well, I can't have it, but I can read about it. And it's the next best thing, isn't it? <laughs> Yes, exactly. Yes. And I and I think for me, like I loved history so much that I really enjoyed that sort of trip back in time through somebody else's um, eyes. And also just knowing that you're safe, like you don't have to worry about the fact that there's no food for you to eat this winter. Um, but it's interesting to read about how they get through it. <laughs> yeah. Isn't that interesting? Because I think reading that as a child for you, that gives you that empathy and that understanding towards it. And I think that's probably I often think it's, it's the books we read as a child that shape us as adults and why we go yeah. on to the jobs that we do. And I know I'm a writer now because I did go to the library every week growing up and those books that I devoured as a kid, you know, like I still remember like my mum used to get quite annoyed with me because I would just, I was such a bookworm. I just took a book everywhere. I remember sitting on a beach in Cornwall 
and it was so hot and so bright I couldn't see the pages I pulled the jumper over my head and I was reading the book under my jumper and my mum was like just come on it's a lovely sunny day and I sort of a book cave for myself (laughs) oh gosh I can totally appreciate that (laughs) and what about favorite libraries what do you remember your childhood library so, you know, it's hard to remember my childhood libraries because we moved so often. Um, but I know when we were living in, um, we were living in Orange County, California, and there is this amazing books, um, or this ma- amazing library. They had a whole kid section with like slides and everything. And they uh-huh. always had so many different books to choose from. And, you know, it's funny because one of my memories from that is like, I, I brought the book into the bathtub with me and I dropped it. <laughs> Kindles are not waterproof if anybody's wondering (laughs) I dropped this book into the into the bathtub and I felt so horrible because I had basically ruined this book the whole thing was like you know all crimped and and I felt really bad because my mom had to pay for the whole price of the book and we we really didn't have a lot of money you know I just I remember just feeling so horrible that I had like ruined this book (laughs) <laughs> I've been there. I have a number of crimped books in my book. <laughs> last question, if you were sent off to a desert island with only one book, what would it be? I have had, so I, I, I listen to a lot of books because I don't have very much time, unfortunately, but I love to sit down and read books, especially a nice thick book. And I have had Kristen Hanna's Four Winds on my TBR forever because it's like sitting like right on the top, but it's such a thick book. I just haven't had the chance to really sit down and read it. So if I was going to be on a desert island, I would bring that book with me yes. so I could read it from cover to cover without interruption and enjoy every second of yes. it. We need to keep you where you are in Florida writing these amazing books of yours. (laughs) I cannot thank you enough for your time. I know what a busy lady you are, and I have absolutely loved talking to you. I I sense a kindred spirit. I love when you're talking, especially about your research, how passionate you are about it, and and it's why you're such a brilliant writer. So thank you so much. Keep writing, please. Oh, thank you. And it's just been so much fun chatting with you. It's it's so wonderful talking to history lovers and research and research fiends and everything else with them. So, <laughs> We're gonna do all the writing too because I absolutely love your books. So <laughs> thank you, Madeline. Thank you so much. I really hope that you enjoyed that conversation. If you have any questions or comments about any of the topics raised in our conversation, or perhaps you have a story you'd like to share, then do get in touch via my website, Facebook or Instagram, details of which are all listed on the podcast. Thanks for listening.